In our series, A String of Pearls, Dutch Buzz contributors speak to people who have made an exceptional contribution to our local community. People whose passion for what they do have had an added value for the city of The Hague. How are the international justice institutions in The Hague responding to the alleged war crimes in Ukraine? And how are these issues covered by journalists? Dutch Buzz's The Hague Pearl, Janice Anderson, is a former BBC journalist and co-hosts a podcast that strives to provide a gender balance on international criminal justice commentary. She speaks to Elena Giola for Dutch Buzz. Janet, thank you so much for being with us today. You're the only person who can help us make sense of uh, how the institutions based here in The Hague uh, will uh, respond to the situation in Ukraine. So I guess we can start talking about that. Yeah, I'm quite amazed by how high profile The Hague has become in this situation. Uh, and of course, I shouldn't be amazed because this is where the institutions are. We have the International Criminal Court for war crimes, crimes against humanity. And then we have the highest court of the United Nations, the International Court of Justice in the iconic Peace Palace, looking at um, the relationship between states. And we have two states, we have Russia, Ukraine, and we have bombings going on there for war crimes. So, you know, you've seen those pictures, haven't you? It says all roads lead to the Hague and they've got uh, the Hague in Ukrainian letters on those, those road signs. So yeah, here is it. But, you know, what does it all mean? And that is something that's really important to help to explain to people what it actually means. Yes, and uh, you truly are our just connection here in The Hague. Uh, that's the, the reason of asymmetrical haircuts. Um, by the way, why asymmetrical haircuts, the name of the podcast? Well, asymmetrical haircuts comes from the short hairstyle that both me and my colleague, Stephanie van den Berg, who I co-host the podcast with, um, and basically we were just throwing around different different names and we really wanted to resist calling it anything to do with justice and peace and this that, and the other and we looked for some kind of commonality between us and something that would make it stand out and it definitely does that I mean once you know the name you're not going to forget it might be difficult to spell but you're not going to forget it um, but the name of the company that I run I mean like many freelancers working you here in the Netherlands you have to have your own little company um, so I called it Justice Connection because I mean, it really symbolizes what it is that I think that I try to do, which is you have this these big institutions, you have um, a lot of commentators, um, students, uh, academics, all working around this area. You have whole loads of specialists, but for everybody else who needs to understand about it. How can they connect in with it? How can they understand what's going on behind the scenes? Who can they ask their big questions to? Um, when something like Ukraine happens, that's when you really notice uh, that, that people are asking these questions. But I mean, even when it's not something as big as Ukraine, I mean, there are other places in the world where there are really bad things going on. There's Syria, there's Yemen, there's, you know, loads and loads of conflicts happening in places and people there are asking the questions how can we get some kind of redress how can we get some kind of accountability are there in any institutions that we can 
work with? What are the, the ways through? You saw at the International Court of Justice, the big case uh, to do with Myanmar, which was brought by a tiny country, Gambia. So how does that work? Why is this country involved? Who's behind it? What is going to be the effects of those things? These are, I mean, I don't know. I'm probably, I feel really geeky talking about it, but these are the things that I think are really important for people to get their heads around, to understand. And I try to explain them in relatively simple language, relatively non-legal language, I mean, but accurate. So, you know, sometimes it can sound a, a little bit like, um, yeah, it's not like we're, we're, we're making the podcast asymmetrical haircuts, but absolutely everybody, you do need to have a little bit of knowledge to, to find your way around in it. But we do think that, that it's really important for as many people to understand how these processes work as possible. And that's partly in order to stop the kind of mis and disinformation that comes around them. But learning about it, do you have you seen that it helps people to understand better, talk better, and then helps the institutions themselves act better? I think that's a really good question. I mean, the last point, um, does it actually help the institutions act better? I believe in journalism. I believe that asking questions is a really good form of accountability on the institutions themselves. So having a group of journalists with, I don't know, a foreign minister, with a president of a court, etc. And then then you get the journalists or bloggers, I mean, people who are writing to explain things to people and they get to ask the questions directly. I, I, I'm not suggesting that that changes an institution, but I think that it, it, it helps bring people down to earth, um, those highfalutin um, people who need to understand how to put their message across, what it is that people need to know, um, what, what, what the, the fundamentals are that they have to, to explain. So I do think that's really important. I've been really privileged at different times to be able to bring in groups of journalists, mainly funded by the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs, who who are, you know, actually put quite an emphasis on enabling journalists to 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 come to this city, the city of peace and justice. They've come for things like uh, the Nuclear Security Summit. So even though that's not directly war crimes or that kind of justice, it's also to do with how the world works, how we have a more secure society, which I think is really important. And those journalists had the opportunity to uh, speak directly to some of the principals of the different institutions here. Um, and I've, I've had that several times over the last 10 years of bringing groups of journalists in from all over the world Uh, to really understand and get a taste of not just the courts and tribunals, but also the knowledge institutions, universities and other research areas. Also, these amazing NGOs, um, pressure groups and advocacy groups um, who are all working in, in this area. So, you know, there's a, there's a real sense of um, The Hague being a place that is worthwhile engaging with where there are so many interesting people here. And I think for journalists from all over the world, it's it's a fascinating place to come to. Yes, I absolutely agree. Um, here's a question. What does it mean to be a journalist today? Oh, it's a really hard work, I think, being a journalist, because 
the whole kind of infrastructure that was around when I started as a journalist uh, way back in the 1980s, where you could support quite a range of activities based on advertising has really changed. So uh, journalism has changed, transformed um, social media, the different platforms that have come in have changed and transformed. And of course, uh, you know, right at the beginning, they were seen as amazing spaces to have direct contact and connection people to spread information positively and then we've had we we've seen how actually those platforms can be abused misused to spread myths and disinformation and journalists have to deal with that whole area and i myself i mean i have done courses now in open source investigation because I find that that's an incredibly important part of how journalism works nowadays to actually be able to quickly examine, for example, a piece of video or a photo and to be able to identify um, some degree of veracity about it. I've done courses in data journalism. I find that that is really important to be able to understand how to present figures graphically so that you can support your your stories. But at the end of the day, I always come back to the fact that I was taught how to tell stories and I still find that that's one of the most important parts of understanding whether it's journalism or advocacy or campaigning work is how to tell the story of something, how to build up the picture something so that your audience really gets uh, to understand it at a deep level and to be able to make up their own minds as to uh, what is true and not true based on understanding all the detail that that you put in and you put it in well. So I'd say the fundamental for me of journalism is storytelling. Um, But there's so much else out there as well. Um, You bring the gender in the reporting, is there a balance um, when it comes to war crimes and, and those big institutions that really change the world? Is there balance, gender balance? What's your experience? I think my experience has kind of changed over the years. Um, I think that if I kind of look at it right now, I would say it's not to say that there is gender balance in the world. It's not to say that everything is perfect, but I think there's a lot greater emphasis on it and a lot greater understanding of how important it is. I mean, women make up half of the world and the idea that they aren't represented at the highest levels of institutions, governments, companies um, is crazy. So that that has to be changed. So full stop, I mean, it has to be changed. But the understanding, I think, is there more. I look back to the very beginning of uh, my career when I joined the BBC. I joined a part of the BBC that said had about, I don't know, say 50 managers in it. And those, out of those, only one was a woman. And she was the one who took me under her wing. She was the one who said that if you don't get the job that you've applied for, I will definitely give you a short contract, which gave me the confidence to to go into the interview with full range of men in the interview for the BBC to, to get the job, to know that I would, would have it in the end. And I've always taken that on board myself of you know, try to support, try to mentor, try to nurture other female talent. In terms of the work that we do in the podcast, the Asymmetrical Haircuts podcast, we do 
positively try to interview um, to feature women as experts, whether they are advocates, uh, whether they're lawyers, whether they're academics, I mean, whoever they are, we will always try to find women. And that was a conscious choice that Stephanie and I made. Stephanie works as a correspondent for one of the major news agencies for Reuters. And she was looking through all of her stories over the years and realizing how many times she was quoting men and how few times she was quoting women. So she pulled herself up and said, how am I going to shift this? And you know, we jointly said, yeah, here's a way to make a small dent in this. If we can encourage women to trust us, because trusting journalists isn't that easy often because you assume that they're going to um, misquote you. Uh, you assume maybe that they're not going to deal fairly with you because I think journalists have quite a bad rap around the world as being you know, not necessarily the, the most honest of people, despite being incredibly important in, in terms of getting the, the news out. So we use the podcast as a way of building relationships also with women. Also giving some women confidence. Um, quite a few of the women we interview, it's the first time that they've ever appeared in a piece of media. So we tell them in advance exactly how it's going to be and exactly what we expect from them. Give them the chance to to retake anything that so that we give them the confidence. And you, you can really see that helps as well. They feel that they're in a safe space, to use, use that term. And uh, I certainly feel that my journalism practice has improved as a result of this because I know a wider range of women who I can call on. Now, that doesn't mean to say that I won't interview men. I will always find the right expert for the piece. And if it happens to be a man, so be it. But when I'm looking at a range of experts, I will try to choose the woman first in order to to make sure that that I give some prominence to them. And all the men that I know who are in this field, they get it. They understand why that is. There's no resentment there. We do need to actually work at changing the balance until things are evened up. Before this interview, I uh, googled uh, your name just to find out more about you and your work. Um, I was impressed with uh, your track record as a journalist for highest in media. I saw your name at the European Press Prize, but also the same name appeared in Goodreads. <laughs> I, published as a published author of 11 books. And uh, is, is that you, Janet? Oh. Unfortunately not, it's not me. There is another Janet H. Anderson who is a travel writer. So, I mean, go ahead, buy her books. I'm sure sure she's a great writer. I don't know her personally. Um, you know how you feel that, that your name is is just a bit too, too well known? I mean, I'm very glad that my name isn't John Smith, obviously. But the name Janet Anderson is, um, it's a strong Scottish name. There was a Scottish uh, member of parliament uh, in the UK called this. My great aunt was called Janet Anderson. It's a family name that has come, come down um, over the generations. What I, I have written are a couple of uh, manuals on how to um, monitor war crimes trials for different different places, but uh, I don't think you'd see those in Goodreads. 
No, yeah, it was it was about fiction. Those were fiction books, or travel books rather. You've seen them before, or I'm the first one to. I I I don't know whether you do this, Eleni, but I have Googled myself my name occasionally, and I thought, who is that person? What does she do? And then realized, okay, I haven't ever read any of them. I must say, so sorry, the other Janet H. Anderson, I haven't read your book. Okay. <laughs> um, um, how did you, um, or when did you uh, come to the Hague? Um, I had been in Nigeria for a couple of years um, for the BBC covering Nigeria and been very intense time there. It was when the it was during one of the military takeovers and there were a lot of human rights abuses going on and it was a very complicated place uh, to live and work. And um, I then came back to uh, the UK to carry on working with the BBC. But my boyfriend at the time, very typical story, uh, was Dutch and the offer was there uh, for me to, to come to The Hague. And I kind of waded up and thought, you know, what are my possibilities? Shall I carry on my career with the BBC or shall I see whether this uh, different move is going to provide some different opportunities? And that's what I did. And The Hague that I came to in the 1990s was quite different, I would say, from the Hague that exists in the 2020s. Of course, I mean, the city is, is still the same, the, the beach is still the same, etc. But the the change that I've seen in the internationalization of, of this city and the build-up of the different institutions, I and mean, there was no ICC at that point when I, uh, there wasn't even the, the Yugoslav tribunal um, just uh, early on. So it has grown into itself, grown into this place where you have this ecosystem of peace and justice institutions and it's become I find a much more interesting place I must admit when I first got here I thought hmm, have I made the right choice but I think I did I really agree it has become such an interesting place to live something we do with all our pearls here um, we 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 want to know them next to what they do know who they are and we ask for three objects just to assign and describe the meaning of three um, objects um, for you. Uh, the first one is an item that is always on your desk. Well, this isn't always on my desk because it comes and goes depending on where I am, but I have uh, put it back on my desk now. And um, it's not an item I think that a lot of people would associate with me. Uh, it's a very small Buddha uh, with his arms outstretched. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not somebody who... Um, really practices uh, religion particularly but uh, this has a couple of meanings one is that it was uh, something that belonged to my to my mum so that's you know so as a personal thing but also we had the opportunity to run an event at the peace palace um, many years ago which was a TEDx you know the independent form of TED talks which and we ran it about Peace and Justice in collaboration with the Peace Palace, managed to get people to come in from all over the world. And we had a number of great talks. And I use this uh, with the coach of the, the speakers because you make sure that the speakers are feeling confident and happy and pass this around everybody pre-COVID time. So pass this around everybody to give his, he's got a very big round stomach, this little wooden Buddha and uh, everybody had a chance to give her his tummy a rub to give themselves good luck. 
um, for for that event, which just made everybody feel, you know, weird but fun. I mean, and I think that's important sometimes is that, that you have things that are just a little bit fun for people uh, to do and uh, that you don't keep everything completely serious, uh, even when you all have to give a very serious TED TED talk and uh, and see how how that goes. So that's my uh, my first object for you, Eleni. I want to rub that belly <laughs> one day. <laughs> um, okay, second, um, an item at your bedside table. I tend to keep poetry next to my bedside table, which is probably a little bit pretentious, but it's I do like to be able to read something that that's short um, and. Um, just sends a different my day into a different dire- direction at the end of the day. Um, so I have collections of poems there. Um, try and think what I have there at the moment. I think I have some Ted Hughes poems. He's a big British writer, and they're quite hard work. His his poems at times, but they do speak to me. Uh, and some Elizabethan poems. I know I have a collection of uh, next to the bedside table. Uh, which are weird and wonderful and uh, completely, again, different from my everyday stuff. So I like reading a bit of poetry. Yeah, that's, I, I can understand that. I can feel how that can be inspiring. I also enjoy poetry a lot. And I really want to ask you uh, this question before. Is is that what gives you hope? Because you're doing a really hard um, job and dealing with war crimes and, and reporting on international justice can be hard. Yeah, I I wouldn't say the poems necessarily provide me with hope. They're more sort of distraction or difference or or something other to be able to, to turn my mind in a different direction. What gives me hope in the field that I'm working in is, is the people that I meet. I mean, they're just extraordinary people who really care and really put the work in on all kinds of areas and um, really do their best to to make it work and and I just love me I mean I wouldn't be a journalist unless I I did enjoy doing this so I just love meeting people and uh, and hearing about uh, their commitment to their work and in some ways that that makes the fact that the subject is so tough and some of the details are so tough that that means that that I feel that that, um, that there are potential solutions, not through the institutions so much, but through the individuals who are working within them. And our last question for the object is basically, we want you to describe a photograph with a special meaning or a story behind it. Um, there's a photo uh, here uh, where you're speaking to me, um, which was given to me when I left one organization. And it's a photo of all of the team together, just in a slightly silly pose. The organization was the uh, the Dutch foreign broadcaster, which was called at that time the Beeldomroep, which then turned um, later into RNW Media, and who I've carried on working uh, for and with at different times, particularly doing capacity building work and training. And it's not so much, in that case, the individuals, it's the fact that it's a team. And I just love any photos that I have of teams that I work with, because that's how I like working. 
Uh, a lot of my work is just sitting here at the computer and just bashing away to try and write something or to edit something or prepare a text or a presentation or so on. But my energy really comes from the people that that I work with in the team and the exchanges that we have. So the team is what makes work possible as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it doesn't all come from me. It really comes from the exchanges that I have with others and the support that we give each other. Janet Anderson, journalist and editor covering war crime trials and Amelie Negiola for Dutch Bass. Dutch Buzz, made by the international community for the international community. Den Haag,